Hello, you're listening to the Solid Word Bible Church podcast. Whether you're at work, driving in your car, or getting your workout on, we hope and pray that what you hear today will fill your spirit. Come, join us as we walk through God's Word together. It is an honor to, to preach um, with the, the Word of God this morning here. And we're starting in, so a couple of weeks ago, I was doing a Bible study with a friend. We were going to study the Sermon on the Mount, and I said, well, let's look what comes before the Sermon on the Mount. We started in on the genealogy and walked our way through the story of Matthew and the birth narrative, and then I had a conversation about preaching, and I was like, well, my head space is in the genealogy, if that's okay, and later I realized, like, what did I get myself into? This is a tough text, um, and it's probably not something anybody will be very excited to hear about. Um, it's a genealogy, and we generally look at the genealogies in the Bible and either plow through them. We've all done that maybe once, right? Then the rest of the times we kind of skip over them or skim them or something, and we don't really want to deal with them because we don't understand them, and we don't know what they mean, and we don't know their importance. But um, a couple of weeks ago also, I was at a funeral for my uncle, and um, sitting around a table afterwards with cousins, my mom's cousins and some of mine, and we had a beautiful time. And people I haven't seen for years, some of them, um, if I do see them, I see them once a year at a reunion. And the conversation goes something along the lines of, oh, this is how they acted when they were kids. And these are the things they did together. And here's the story of this person. And so-and-so is buried here. And I learned things about my, I, I didn't know that my grandmother wanted to adopt a little girl and had plans to do that one day and then ended up not going because she was sick and decided that the Lord didn't want her to adopt. I mean, just, I'm like, Whoa. I learned things by sitting around the table with my family and telling the stories of the family, right? And that's exactly what Matthew's wanting us to do. And he's going to open his book. He's got a big job. Matthew has lived with Jesus. He's walked with Jesus. He's seen the crucifixion, the resurrection, and he's been challenged by Jesus. He's been given a mandate by Jesus to go preach this gospel to the nations. He knows that this is his job, and he knows he can sit down and write this out how do you start a book like that? What do you begin with? How do you begin to tell the importance? What words can open a book and say, here's why you all need to pay attention? But for his readers, this is the perfect thing, to throw a genealogy at the beginning and say, here's where Jesus comes from. But it also, we'll find out today, tells us where the mission's headed and what the importance of the rest of the book is. The significance of the life of Jesus is all hinted at through the genealogy because this genealogy isn't just a list of names one after another. He interrupts it in really interesting and meaningful ways, and he arranges it. It's a curated list. If you actually compare Matthew's genealogy with the records of the Old Testament, you'll see some discrepancies, but Matthew's intentional. He leaves out a few people so that he can have the perfect number that he wants to communicate something important to us. So that's what we're going to do today. We're going to try to sit in Matthew's readers, original readers' shoes and try to understand, in their chairs, and try to figure out what is the importance of this genealogy. So with that, we are going to read through the whole thing. Um, Yes, and so this is God's Word. So let's stand and acknowledge God's Word, um, even as I read through this together. Lord, um, may your Word come alive in our hearts today. Matthew 1. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers. And Judah the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar, 
and Perez, the father of Hezron, and Hezron, the father of Ram. And Ram, the father of Aminadab, and Aminadab, the father of Nashon. And Nashon, the father of Salmon. And Salmon, the father of Boaz, by Rahab. And Boaz, the father of Obed, by Ruth. And Obed, the father of Jesse. And Jesse, the father of David, the king. That was the first sort of table, second table. And David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah. And Solomon, the father of Rehoboam, and Rehoboam, the father of Abijah. And Abijah, the father of Asaph. And Asaph, the father of Jehoshaphat. And Jehoshaphat, the father of Joram. And Joram, the father of Uzziah. And Uzziah, the father of Jotham. And Jotham, the father of Ahaz. And Ahaz, the father of Hezekiah. And Hezekiah, the father of Manasseh. And Manasseh, the father of Amos. And Amos, the father of Josiah. And Josiah, the father of Jeconiah and his brothers, at the time of the deportation to Babylon. End of the second table. Third table. And after the deportation to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Shealtiel, and Shealtiel the father of Zerubbabel, and Zerubbabel the father of Abiud. And Abiud the father of Eliakim, and Eliakim the father of Azor, and Azor the father of Zadok. And Zadok the father of Achim, and Achim the father of Eliud, and Eliud the father of Eleazar, and Eleazar the father of Mathan, and Mathan the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom, the whom refers to Mary here, of whom Jesus was born, who is called Christ. So, all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations, and from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations, and from the deportation to Babylon to the Christ, 14 generations. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. You may be seated. So, a genealogy in this day and age meant a lot of things. If, in fact, if you, were an, if you were in Abraham's position and you were living a nomadic lifestyle, your genealogy could make or break your week, depending on who you meet in the desert, which tribes meet who, and who you can connect with in your genealogy, and you can know if you're on the right side or the wrong side of the family, or if, you're, if there's a vendetta going between the families or something like that. So it's super important to know your identity through your genealogy. Also in the ancient Middle East, and even today, um, genealogies helped establish marriages. They talked that's a legal document that passes along inheritances, very many important things about life and finances, and children and marriages are on the line. It legitimizes a social structure. It tells you a status of somebody. It tells you who has the right to hold office. It also can be used to praise character and to exhort people to be like someone. So many things go into a genealogy, and we're not going to cover any of that today because there's other things that Matthew's doing in this genealogy that are beyond all those things that we want to look at. Um, in particular, he's going to lay out the themes of his gospel in here, and he's going to not only tell us the backstory of Jesus, but he's helping us look forward to the end of the story, the end of his book. In fact, we'll see some really amazing similarities between the last paragraph of Matthew and this genealogy. It's like bookends on the book, and all the way through the book, then you're looking for these things to see how Jesus fulfills all these things he's saying here. So it's really about the meaningfulness and significance of who this Christ of Christmas is. 
And we're going to see three things that I want to kind of pay attention to today. One is Matthew has a particular sweeping view of history with Jesus at the fulcrum of it. Secondly, there is an, a theme, an ongoing understanding that there is a radical inclusivity to this gospel of Matthew and to the mission of Jesus. And finally, even in this genealogy, we're going to see that there's an expansive sense of invitation. And that invitation is going to expand not only to the readers of Matthew, but to you and me today. So we have to find ourselves at the end in this genealogy somehow. That's the goal, okay? So a normal genealogy goes father, so-and-so fathered, so-and-so, so-and-so fathered, so-and-so, or the old word begat, 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 right? We have that. Um, so what we're going to do today is not pay attention to those because that's normal in a genealogy. What we're going to do is we're going to look at the, the differences. We want to look at some of the irregularities in Matthew's gospel because that's where we're going to discover how and why he's imbuing this with meaning. We understand that just looking at this, that God's story runs through families. Isn't that a blessing for us today? God's story runs through families. And so we pray for our kids and our grandkids, and we're thankful for the legacies and the, you know, the heritages that we have. We also, we're not going to look at this today either, but we can just see clearly like God chose a nation, and in some sense that's a subversive message in a Roman empire. You're publishing a nation's genealogy here and saying it matters and there's kingship lines, and you're still talking about kings in the days of an emperor? So that's in there as well. And yet that's not really where we're going today. We're going to look and see. There's three other things I want you to kind of see how he takes a genealogy and does something interesting with it. Before we get there, we're going to look at the first verse. The first verse isn't really part of the genealogy, but it sets it up really well. It sets up the genealogy. It also sets up the whole gospel. Um, if we look at the slide, um, the, word, the first two words are biblos, genesis, the book of Genesis. That's the first thing that shows up. Um, this word we have here, genealogy, that's one translation of Genesis, the word Genesis. If you look back in the book of Genesis, you'll see ten times there are lists of people, and each time it's said the Genesis or the generation of, for example, the first one, well, actually the first one is of creation, that's in chapter 2, and then he goes on to, to uh, Adam, to Seth, to Terah, and he goes ten times through, and he lists the people's coming after this person. So there's a person at the top of the list, that's the node of the list, and the genesis or the generations of that person, right, coming after. So right from the beginning, we get this idea that the generation, the book, the record of the genealogy of Jesus Christ is not only looking back, it's also talking about who his descendants will be, who his family will be. It's a genesis. It's a beginning as well. And it's not just for this genealogy, although that's a good translation, but this is setting up the whole book. This whole book is about Jesus creating a family. So that's very interesting. The other thing I want you to note in this is that he starts with Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. And so right from the beginning, he's telling you, I want you to pay attention to these particular names. We're going to go back and see them again and fill in the gaps between these people, but these are important. These are the top nodes of this book. Abraham, David, and Jesus. 
Now, he starts with Jesus, says David and Abraham. He's going to go backwards the other way now. He's going to start with Abraham, take us to David, take us to, not Jesus yet, the deportation. He puts the deportation at the top of the next node, and then we get to Jesus. That's a strange thing we will come to. But the first irregularity I want you to look at is the couple of times he says this phrase, and his brothers. That's not needed. Now, the first time we see that is verse 2. Jacob, so Abraham, the father of Isaac, Jacob, we expect that, right? These are the patriarchs. They're supposed to be in there. The father of Judah and his brothers. Now, at first glance, it might seem like, oh, Judah and his brothers, yeah, that's the 12 tribes of Israel. So, of course, that makes sense. But why is it Judah and why is it his brothers? Judah wasn't the oldest. Reuben was. And there were two others ahead of him, too, in line. And also, what about Joseph? Wasn't he the most important guy? Isn't he the one that everybody bowed down to and worship? Not worship, but they bowed down to him, right? He had the dream. So we have that whole story. So it's kind of weird. How does Judah get in this node? Oh, sorry, in this place. And why are the brothers mentioned? Well, first of all, um, we're going to look at Judah, and uh, I want you to think, so in Genesis 49, first of all, it tells us what kind of, uh, how the family inheritance passed down, skipping Reuben, goes to Judah. And it's not exactly clear why Judah was chosen, although a lot of people can figure out from sort of the reading the stories why Reuben's not included, why the other two are not included. You can do that work on your own. But Judah is chosen probably because, maybe because, of his willingness to sort of sacrifice himself, put himself in the place of his other brothers and go down to Egypt, even in the face of the opposition, possibly becoming a slave and instead of his son, instead of his brother Simeon, taking his place, offering himself in that space, right? Offering himself instead of Benjamin. He'll shield Benjamin as he goes down into Egypt. So Judah has the sense and somehow he gets the father's blessing. And here's the interesting thing. I don't think it's just about 12 tribes. When he says his brothers... I think it's referring to Genesis 49, where Judah is blessed. Hear these words. This is his father speaking. The blessing on Judah. He says, your brothers shall praise you. It's not just about his brothers in general. It's about the fact that his brothers will praise him. And then in verse 10, it says, the scepter shall not depart from Judah. So the royal line is promised to Judah right there. Nor the ruler's staff from between his feet until tribute comes to him, and to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. So when Matthew puts Judah and his brothers, his readers are going, oh, this genealogy of Jesus is not about just a royal line, but it's about a royal line that commands the attention of all the princes of the people, all the heads of the peoples, all the heads of the nations, all the brothers bow down and worship. So we're going to look at that. It's interesting that at the end of Matthew, we see that happening in Jesus' life. Matthew 28 says, Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee and to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him. And then later in that same little passage, he asked them to teach others to obey him. So the worship and the obedience of the nations is coming to Jesus at the end of Matthew. And here we have it at the beginning, and he wants us to look through Matthew and look for a king who will rule and his brothers will worship him. It is interesting that there's a, there's a passage in Matthew where Jesus is sort of told, like, hey, your mother and brothers are waiting for you. And he says, do you remember what he says? Who is my mother? Who are my brothers? 
and stretching out his hands to his disciples, here are my mother and my brothers, whoever does the will of my Father in heaven, whoever's obedient, right, is my brother and sister and mother. Now, that was a little bit of a reference to them, but the kicker comes after the resurrection when he tells the women, Mary, the two Marys at the tomb, he says, go tell my brothers. Go tell my brothers. It's the first time he actually speaks of them directly as his brothers. Before that, they were his disciples. Now they're his brothers. And so we see that at the beginning. Judah and his brothers, and we're supposed to kick in the gear thinking, oh, what about Jesus? And what about his brothers? It's very interesting. Um, even in, there, in Romans 8.29, Jesus has a title. It's called the firstborn among many brothers. So that's really interesting. The second irregularity in this thing is that two times he talks about after the deportation. And I mentioned that earlier, that there's an interruption in the genealogy. It's supposed to be Abraham, then David, and then according to the very first verse, it should be Jesus. But we have, a, we have an event in a genealogy, a list of names, and one event, a thing that happened. That's very interesting because at some level, Matthew is reminding them of the deep brokenness of their nation. He's calling to mind the many, many times the Jewish people have suffered the humiliation of having to leave their home over and over again into Egypt, whether it's Abraham, whether it's Moses or Joseph and his family, whether it's you know the return out of Egypt, but then all of a sudden you're faced with deportation and exile into Babylon. And so over and over again, the Israelites have faced this theme in their history of deportation. Now, we often talk about the exile, but here Matthew actually chooses the word deportation, not exile, because his point, the deportation is the beginning of an exile. And he doesn't say here, after the exile. He says, after the deportation, twice. Verse 11, Josiah, the father of Jeconiah, and his brothers, also that phrase again, at the time of the deportation to Babylon, after the deportation to Babylon, Jeconiah, and then in verse 17, the deportation is mentioned again two more times. It's a very serious thing to bring up. It's like you're sitting around at the family table and you bring up the thing that no one wants to talk about, the skeleton in the closet, the family secrets, let's leave, the, put the laundry away, you know, let's not bring it out. But here it is. And Matthew is acknowledging to the readers of his day that in some level, that exile is not over. They're still in the time after the deportation. And they need something to resolve that. What's the issue? They're back in the land, but if you know your Old Testament history, you know that it wasn't very satisfying when they came back. The temple wasn't as good. The fellowship wasn't as good. The community wasn't as good. People still worshipped the idols of the nations. Um, there was a puppet king for a little bit. His name's in here, actually, uh, Zerubbabel, but he didn't really rule. He was under the authority of the Babylonians, and his son didn't become king, so he wasn't a real king. And none of these guys in the third table, none of those guys end up being king. They might have a right to it, but they didn't occupy the space. They didn't have the office. And so you can't be done with exile until you have the king promised to David sitting on the throne. And so what's happening? They are in their exile still. They're under the oppression and rule of Rome. But there is a promise that that exile would be over. And 
in Isaiah 10, there's some interesting language about this return from exile. The remnant will return. In Isaiah 10, 27, he talks about it this way. In that day, his burden will depart from your shoulder. Actually, he's talking about the Lord's burden on his people. His burden will depart from your shoulder and his yoke from your neck, and the yoke will be broken because of the fat. I will finish the verse. I have no idea what that means. But what's important is that God is promising that that burden of exile would be over. And he compares it to the language that of Egypt, the, the burden that the people felt under the Pharaoh. He's using that same language to talk about the exile in Babylon. And he uses his language of a yoke. And wouldn't you remember in Matthew, what does Jesus do with that very language? He turns it into this amazing invitation. Come to me. This is Matthew 11, 28 to 30. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden. Jesus isn't talking about agriculture in this verse, by the way. I've heard that preached that way. He's talking about exile. He's reminding them of their exile and saying, Come to me, all of you who are in exile, who are laboring. The sweat of your brow is going to pay for someone else's temple or castle. You are laboring in there with a heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Rest is a motif through the whole Bible of safety at home, returning to the place where you're known and loved and you feel safe. Some of us know what home is, but we also don't always feel safe there. That's part of our exile, isn't it? It's not always right, even in the place where it should be with the people that should be giving us that safety. Jesus says, I will give you the rest of what home looks like, the rest that's promised by family. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. Take my yoke upon you. The yoke of the oppressor is broken, but Jesus is offering his yoke. For I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. So Matthew is telling us after the deportation, after the deportation, after the deportation, who's going to save us from this exile? Who can fill not only David's seat, but who can give us rest? And in Matthew 11 says, Jesus says, I can. I can give you rest. Come to me. Very interesting. So this sweep of history that Matthew's envisioning starts with Abraham and tells us that you need to look at Abraham because he is the father of a nation. And he leaned on the promises of God. He leaned into that. And you need to look at David because he is the one who received a promise that his sons would always, one of his sons would always be on the throne of Israel. And you need to look at, there's no one in the next spot. That spot is empty. The kings have failed us. Who can sit there in that spot? Nobody. And it goes on for generations, 14 more generations. And now, Matthew says, History is being resolved because Jesus is arriving and he will sit on David's throne and he will offer you rest from your exile. He is here. He is coming. It's amazing. The second big thing, not only the sweep of history, but Matthew also wants to show us something about the inclusivity of the gospel. Now, I believe that the gospel is both inclusive and exclusive. And you get that here because it's all about Christ. This genealogy is the, geneal- the book of the genealogy, the book of the record of the family, of the lineage, and the descendants, and the mission of Jesus. That's where the exclusivity comes in. It's only Jesus. It's the only way. 
But other than that, super inclusive because we like to figure out ways to exclude people all the time. We do it very easily. Um, obviously, we do it in our country by race, right? We do it by gender and sex. We, we have differences, don't we? We do it in political ways all the time. My people and your people, we're in, you're out. That's how we operate. But this tells us a different story. So, how does he do that? Well, he slides in some names that you just wouldn't expect to see. Now, not only are these names that you probably already prepped for here, I know you know where I'm going here, but not only are they women, because here's the problem. Like, if that was the issue, why didn't he just throw Sarah and Rachel and Rebecca in there, the matriarchs, the ones that everybody was easy with? So it is about the women. That's good for women that women are in this genealogy. That's unusual for his day and probably for ours too, right? So there's a, there's a beautiful thing going on there. But there's more because it's not just the matriarchs. It's Tamar who slept with her father-in-law, acted like a prostitute, prostituted herself to her father-in-law. What's going on with that? Why does she get mentioned? Then there's Rahab. She was this wonderful... No. She was a prostitute in Jericho. Then there is Ruth. Now, we have good opinions about Ruth, easily, but she's referred to always as the Moabitess, the cursed people. She came from a cursed nation. And then we've got, we don't even have Bathsheba's name in here, we have Uriah's wife. I'm not blaming Bathsheba, by the way. I think that the whole scenario was all David's fault completely. But we have to figure out what's going on. It's not just the fact that these are women, and it's not really only the fact that they're Gentiles, although that's probably the case. We're not 100% sure about Bathsheba, but she's married to a Hittite, so she might have been Hittite. So probably, yes, they're Gentiles, but there's something else going on. And in each of these cases, the amazing thing is that these women, or in these stories, the outsider showed more faith than the insider. That's what's going on. So in the first story with Tamar, after the whole scenario is over and Judah's pronouncing judgment on Tamar for being pregnant out of wedlock and having prostituted herself, and she holds up his cord and his signet ring and his staff, and he says, I'm pregnant by the guy whose these belong to. <laughs> and she's basically saying, I preserved your line, the sacred line that was promised to your fathers and said down to you, you're supposed to be doing this work. You wouldn't give me your sons which you were supposed to do by leveret law. There's a whole thing. I'm not going into it. But you didn't fulfill the law. You didn't do what was right by me. I took the place, and I did the work, and I am going to carry this line down to my son, Perez. Interesting, isn't it? And Judah actually declares her to be more righteous than him. And I think that's a very interesting, like that helps, that helped me figure out like that's what's going on in these stories. These people are more righteous than the Israelites. What about Rahab? Rahab was the prostitute in Jericho. So the people of God have come up to the land. They've looked over the fence and most of them in the book of Numbers went, no, 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 we can't do that. They're too big, those people. They're too mighty. They've got advanced weaponry. We can't take this, right? Now, there were some that were faithful, but here we have a story of two spies who go into Jericho, and what does Rahab say? 
I know that the Lord has given you the land. She says a lot of other beautiful things too, but those words really stuck out to me. I know that the God of Israel, who's done all these things to all these kings and delivered you out of Egypt, she knows the story and she says, I know, I can see it. God has given you the land and I choose you all. I'll help you out, but you got to let me in. I'll leave a cord so you know where I am. And then when it's all over, I want in. And guess what? She gets all the way in. She gets into Jesus' lineage. And then there's Ruth. And again, many beautiful things can be said about Ruth, her loyalty, her, even the your God will be my God. That's pretty powerful. But the story I love the most is where she slides under the blanket at night at Boaz's feet. It's kind of shocking and scandalous. And he wakes up, and he sees her, and he's already been in love with her. You can tell from the passages. And he's like, what are you doing here? Like, you're in a very vulnerable position right now, woman. Why are you at my feet? I could take advantage of you. You could be killed for what you're doing right now. And she says, so cover me. Extend the corner of your garment over me. Shelter me, protect me. And she says, because you are my Redeemer. She basically is proposing to him. She's saying, you can kill me or you can marry me. You can't have, that's the only two ways about it. He was already in love with her, so it, was, it all worked out beautifully. Um, and, and how does she fit into the story about the Gentile having more faith than the Israelite? Well, if you look at a timeline of the Bible, the book of Ruth fits right into Judges chapter 3. What's happening in Judges chapter 3? Over and over again, this phrase, the people did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. Ruth was the outsider who did what was right and claimed her place through a redeemer into this family and, and carries on the righteous lineage through which Jesus will come. It's amazing, isn't it? I also think that's why Bathsheba is not mentioned because we don't know a lot about what happened with Bathsheba from her perspective. But we do from Uriah's, and he's mentioned. And that's interesting because Uriah, if you remember, he was out on the front lines fighting for Israel. He's not an Israelite. He's fighting for Israel. And he's called back to cover David's guilt and shame. David wants him to go sleep with his wife so that he can say, that baby belongs to you. And what does Uriah say? The ark and Israel and Judah dwell in booths. They're out in the bivouacking in the tents. Shall I then go to my house to eat and drink and lie with my wife? Far be it for me to do such a thing. He's not going to do that. When he knows that the ark of God is on the move, that the enemies of God are fighting against the people of God, he's claiming a place with the people of God, even though the king of the people of God, who was supposed to be out there fighting, staying home, is trying to get him to enjoy some pleasure and cover over his sin. Now, I didn't realize all that he was doing there, but he was being faithful to a covenant God that he wanted to be part of. These are Gentiles who claimed a place in the kingdom of God, and then ultimately in the lineage of Jesus, in the family of Jesus. It's really amazing. I think that's why they're there. And what does that tell us? The principle of inclusivity is based on one thing only, one and one thing only. Faith. It points to the basis of faith as the only way that these people, not just these four, but everybody on this list, 
gets into the kingdom of God. Now, they're going to think that they got in because my dad was so-and-so, and his dad was so-and-so, and his dad was so-and-so. That makes me okay. And we have our own little ways of doing that, don't we? I do my thing. I've got the right connections. But there is no basis by which we can come to God and say, take me in other than one thing, faith in Jesus Christ. Jesus said in Matthew 5, so this is pointing on to Matthew 5, he says, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. How can anyone exceed the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees if you're going to base your righteousness on the works that you do? Because those guys had it down. They knew how to do good works, and they were proud of it. That was the problem, right? How do you do that? You place your faith in the one who did all of the work before God. So there is a sweep of history. There is a radical inclusivity. And finally, there is an invitation. There's an embedded in here. I don't have to do this at the end of the sermon and just like add an invitation on. It's in the genealogy. There is an invitation. And it's an expansive invitation. It's one that pushes out. How do we know this? <clears throat> well, because, first of all, there's a lot of things that point to this. Um, well, one of them is the 14 generations thing. What does that mean? Well, it can mean a couple things. It, 14 can actually be, if you look at the number, by the way, this whole genealogy is a mathematically genius level written thing. Just go on YouTube and look it up, right? Matthew's genealogy, mathematics, and bam, all kinds of numerology things going on here that's crazy beautiful. But the 14 is the one that Matthew really emphasizes, isn't it? And it actually is a number associated, I'm not going to tell you how, but you can look it up, with David's name. And so when he says 14, 14, 14, he's reminding us that this is about David's lineage. But there's something else going on too. 14 and 14 and 14 is the same as six sevens. Think about it. Each 14 is two sevens. So you got three 14s, right? So there's a bit of a reference here to, I mean, when you see a seven or a multiple of seven in the Bible, you know something's going on all the way established from creation. So how many sevens do we have? We've got six. And so what are we looking for? We're looking for, you can't have six sevens. You've got to complete it. Something's got to finish this off, right? The fact that there's 14, 14, and 14 asks you, the, the, the reader of Matthew's gospel, to say, ask the question, where's the seventh seven? It's got to be there. Well, that's where the invitation is. This is the day of rest for God's people. Why? Because Jesus has come, and He's offered rest. He's offered a Sabbath. He's offering to be the top of a new table, a new node. He's at the top. His people will populate it, and what is He going to give them? Not deportation, and not even promises. And we have promises, yes, but not. we have the old promises. What do we have now? We have Jesus. He fulfills the promises, and He offers Himself to us. We're not waiting to get Jesus. Now, we are waiting for His return. We want to get Him in a different way, but we have Jesus now because we're in the seventh day, so to speak. We're in the rest of the Lord. The people knew what exile 
looked like. These people were very familiar with that. They knew what it means to descend into darkness of Egypt. They knew what it meant to be forced into migration. They knew what it meant to have other nations ruling over them. And through all that history, they held on to this promise that the king would come and offer them something new, a new work of God, a new covenant relationship, a new king, same continuity with the old kings, but something brand new, something that would never change, an eternal kingdom, an eternal king on an eternal throne. And Jesus steps in that place and says, come to me. Take my yoke upon you. Let me be your king. Learn from me. I will educate you, for I am gentle and lowly in heart. I'm the kind of king you want to rule over your life. You'll find rest for your souls. And so I want to ask you today, what kind of rest do you need for your soul? And really, the best way to answer that is to ask a much harder question. What kind of exile do you struggle with? Because at some level, we've received this king, and at some level, we're still struggling with exile. We actually throw ourselves into exile over and over and over again. If you think about the original exile, it was Adam and Eve being kicked out of the garden for what? For their disobedience. So the ultimate real exile is our sin. It removes us from presence with God. And we like to go there. We'll, we'll, we'll go back into exile very easily. Our shame will kick us into running gear, and we just sprint out of the house of the Lord, the family of God, the promises of God, the, the righteousness of God. We leave it, and we go, and we, we either run towards that sin, or we go hiding in our shame. And those are exilic places. Those are places of loneliness and darkness. And you guys know what I'm talking about. Yours may not be, look exactly like mine, but you know what I'm talking about. You know how I know? Because one of the reasons we chose to come here to this church is you guys are vulnerable people. And sometimes you speak about those things to each other, which is really beautiful. That's the best way out of exile, to start telling people about it. I'm an exile. Help me. Bring me back. Remind me. That's one of the reasons we like being here. Because I need that from you. Right? Because my soul is happiest when I'm at rest in Jesus. Right? Olivia told us this morning, I started reading my Bible again, and things are getting better. That's how it works, right? Um, we need to rest in the promises of God's grace. Another way we do this, by the way, is we play the religion card a lot. And that's what we get good at, right? Um, if we're not hiding and pretending we don't have sin, and we're actually doing the same thing on the flip side of that, we're just promoting our righteousness, right? And we're, we get bedazzled by our own righteousness as well, right? We want others to see it. We also start believing in ourselves. We start to believe that I'm doing pretty well. I'm a good man. I'm a good person. I'm a great woman. People like me, right? And so we can play both sides of that. We can either go to guilt and shame or we can go to the self-righteousness, which also Jesus describes as the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees. And he's calling them to come out of their exile, the clearest place you can remember this is from the story of the prodigal son. Now, that's not in Matthew, unfortunately. I wish it were because I would tie it all together. But Jesus did tell the story in Luke, and he talks about two exiles, doesn't he? A prodigal son who runs from the home, runs from his father's grace, experiences the shame, the guilt, still in exile, decides to come back to the father's house, but not to be his son. He still is claiming an exilic sort of mentality. He's like, I'm still going to be in exile. I'll just be a servant, right? I'm not going to be a true son. So that, that makes sense. We get that. 
the part that Jesus, and, and the beautiful thing is that story resolves really nicely in that story, doesn't it? The father takes him in and says, no, 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 you're my son. You're coming home all the way. You get my signet ring. You get my robes. You get the sandals. You get the inheritance back. Now, the older son says, wait a minute. He spent his inheritance. That means my inheritance is going to be split again? This is not fair, right? And what's the son doing? He's saying, I was righteous. I stayed with you. I did the right thing. I worked. I managed the, the, the whole farm. I did everything for you. And he's throwing himself into exile. And the question at the end that Jesus doesn't resolve because he's talking to Pharisees is, what happens to that older son? Does he ever get home? Does he come inside the house to the party? Or does he stay outside? Mad. He's in exile. And sometimes that's where we are too. So I'm asking you to think today, what's exile look like in your life? The solution is the same. Either way, it's to throw yourself on the mercy and the grace of Jesus Christ, isn't it? Come back. Olivia said this morning, she was talking about Hagar. That was a good word, wasn't it? Hagar was an exile. She wasn't part of this list. She didn't make it on this list. Her son didn't make it on this list. The other guy did. But still, even for her, what did that look like? The Lord shows up and says, I see you. I see you. That's a good word. That's a good example for us, how we can avail ourselves and take this exilic nature we're in and say, I, I want to belong. I want to be like Tamar. I'm going to claim my place. I want to be like Rahab and claim a place. You don't claim it because of your righteousness. You claim it because of the work of God. How does that work? One more thing about that. It only works because Jesus himself took the place of Israel in their exile. He actually did it as a baby, right? He goes down into Egypt. He's, a, he's, he's, he's kicked out. He does the whole refugee thing. But it's more than that. He goes through the cross into death. That is the ultimate exile. And he returns. So our return is based on his return. If he can return... And if we are in Him, then we return home to safety and rest, trusting in Christ's righteousness. That's the first invitation. The second invitation I want you to think about today is this whole idea of the brothers because that's still the, the, the open missing link to this whole thing. How does Jesus weave us into this genealogy, into this story? Because in the... I don't, know if, I don't know if you've been seeing that slide I made. Is it there? <coughs> uh, that's okay. There were three tables. I, read, I told you about them as I was reading. In the first table, it talks about Judah and his brothers. In the second table, there's Jeconiah and his brothers. In the third table, there's no and his brothers. But it does come, doesn't it? I told you this already. It's at the end of Matthew. It's sort of through the passage, too, but he's talking to his disciples. But what does he say to them at the very end? At the very end, he says, Go, therefore... And make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them. Remember he said, come to me and learn from me? And now he's saying, and now I want you to go and teach others, and they will learn. They will receive this invitation as well. Jesus' ministry is to extend this invitation to more and more brothers. These are his brothers, the 11 on this mountain, worship him, and then he says, go make more brothers for me. I will need more people in my family. That's what this is about. It's his mission. 
Why does it matter? Why do we want to be in this family at all in the first place? Why would you want to put your faith in Jesus today? And I'll tell you, there is one more promise. It's the same promise God always made His people, but Jesus repeats it the very last words of Matthew. And I am with you always to the end of the age. That's the promise we hold on to as well. Isn't that beautiful? One more thing. I, I just loved everything you said this morning, Olivia. You said one more other amazing thing. In your prayer, you said, if we are spreading such an important message, how can we not be seen? How can our lives not matter? If you want your life to matter, if you want to be out of exile and come home, that's amazing. And then if you want it to matter, you join the mission and you tell others, come, join this family. It's for you. It's radically inclusive. All you have to do is put your faith in Jesus. So I'd ask you today, whether you're a believer or not. If you're not a believer, first time is great. That's what we encourage. We love that. But it's not just for those people. It's for all of us. Again, today. Today is the day. Do not harden your hearts. Return to the Lord and enter the rest of the Lord today. Claim the promises of God for His righteousness in your life today. That's for the believer, right? And He will be with you. It's an amazing word for this season, and I hope that that's where we can stay in our hearts as we look at the Christ of Christmas. Let's pray. You've been listening to the Solid Word Bible Church podcast, and we trust that you've been blessed. If you'd like to learn more about us, you can visit our website at solidword.org. Thank you for joining us today, and we'll see you next week.